0: Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack Studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times, and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these Northern musicians who performed in Northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. When I was about eight years old, my mom had hoped that another teacher, besides herself, might be able to get me interested in playing the piano. She hired Penny Omond, a young piano player in our neighborhood, for a couple of lessons, but back then, my only desire was to play the drums. Around that time, when she was 13 years old, Penny joined a young rock band called the Stained Glass Illusion and played at school dances and youth events. She also played with some of her school teachers in the band Easy Street at the Legion and at the Elks. Playing piano with two groups, Penny was playing almost every weekend. Though she only played with these groups between 1969 and 1970, her memories and insights provide yet another snapshot into the Yellowknife music scene, taken through the eyes of a young woman, parachuted into a party room full of adults in the throes of their weekend revelry. After two years, Penny stepped out of the scene to focus on her classical music studies and her education. In the mid-1970s, she spent time in the Yukon, experiencing and enjoying the folk music revival of that time. Penny attended the early Farago and Frostbite music festivals there, returning to Yellowknife to perform with a folk group at one of the early Folk on the Rocks music festivals. In subsequent years, her work took her to many remote northern communities in the Northwest Territories, when traditional music was still vibrant and strong in the day-to-day lives of the Métis, Mixed Blood, and Dene cultures. Penny has seen many changes in the traditional cultures and music of the Indigenous people of the North. In this podcast, she reflects upon the opportunity to be a part of and to bear witness to those changes over the decades.
1: I grew up in a small community, I was born in Churchill, we lived in uh, Frobisher Bay in al and then Fort Smith. And in Fort Smith I started taking piano lessons with one of the nuns at the convent, Sister Cote. So the convent was attached to the hospital, i go every day after school and practice because we didn't have a piano at home. So I did a Royal Conservatory thing with her till the summer of 67 which was when we moved to Yellowknife. Mm -hmm. And that summer I bought my first 45 at Wally's Drugstore which was Summer in the City Mm -hmm. with the Love and Spoonful and just got exposed to the music that was starting to happen and I really hadn't heard anything. You'd hear a bit of Beatles on the radio, you know from time to time you'd hear something but then I sort of discovered the world of records and that you could buy records and all that good stuff. So we moved to Yellowknife and I okay, was... I hold you to Fort Smith for oh, a while? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah, for sure. yeah. Uh,
0: how did you get your records?
1: Um, well, Besides my, my <laughs> dad had a, a membership in the Columbia Record Company. You get these mailers and you could get, if you joined, you could get 10 records for 10 bucks. So I started just ordering things I hadn't heard of. So one of my favorites from that time was Doug Kershaw, The Cajun Way, which is a fabulous album, but just a whole other style of music I'd never heard before. And um, jazz, I'd order, I ordered a Chet Baker, um, Motown, uh, Aretha, Marvin Gaye.
0: Did you know those names of the people that you were buying? or No, was it just sort of,
1: Shot, in the, a shot or, in the Dark,
0: Shot in the Dark. Or did the record company actually, because I think sometimes they would just kind of go, we'll send you $10, give us $10 and we'll send you $10. Yeah,
1: no, but they had, the, the printed material was by category. Okay. And so it was just Shot in the Dark. Yeah. Stuff, but it just opened my eyes to how big music was because up until then all I really knew was what was on the radio, which was yeah. a lot of country and western, which I still love, and then the classical I was getting exposed to through my piano lessons, and then the whole Columbia Records thing yeah. opened yeah, up yeah, bigger sure. stuff.
0: The radio at that time you would have been getting would you be getting C F Y K, would you be getting the voice of the golden north? Or <laughs> was it from here or was it
1: um, I don't recall honestly in Fort Smith. I have really like vivid memories of being, you know, in Churchill and hearing like Hank Williams songs and things. And in fact, just a, a little side thing, I was just with my parents at their 65th wedding anniversary, and I and I was taking them on a car trip to the southern you know, Okanagan. we were going to be in the car for a day, and I made a playlist of everything I could remember from growing up, and they just loved it. You know, like they knew all the songs, but like a big part of it was country and western stuff and Johnny Mathis and you know records my parents had Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, um, the Limelighters, you know just crazy stuff. Then we moved to Fort Smith that summer and I ended up in Mrs. Dagenais grade 8 class at St. Pat's and she became my piano teacher. So I continued on with the Royal Conservatory stuff which I really really liked. My parents bought me a piano, I finally had a piano at home which was great. Um, And then in grade 9 Um, I remember it was the spring, Um, I got a call either from Gary Tees or Tony Gilchrist saying that they heard I played the piano and was I interested in auditioning for their band The Stained Glass Illusion, which came right out of the blue. Um, But I had been playing a lot of stuff by ear and so they came over and I had the piano upstairs but I can't remember how we got this but we had this very traditional kind of organ that I had in my bedroom with the two keyboards and the pedals and everything, kind of like what your mom had. So I remember them sitting on my bed in my basement bedroom and I played House of the Rising Sun and uh, um, Light My Fire and whatever else it was. I played a bunch of stuff. And they said, okay, do you want to be in the band? I said, sure. And that was how that started. Grade 9. Grade 9. Yeah, end of grade 9. Grade 13. So I was 13, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was, yeah. So, I mean, in retrospect, I was pretty young to get exposed to what, ultimately you end up getting exposed to when you play in a rock and roll band anywhere yeah. right but um, musically it was really really fun um, so we would practice at Tony's place his parents were great it was right across from St. Pat's school or at John's place because uh, John had, a, had his own place that so we would practice there
0: too
1: John, Gary, Tony and me oh, wow. yeah just the four of us yeah wow. mm-hmm. so
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I seen some pictures of this table that's Oh, yeah, yeah. You're progressive for this town. It
1: was really fun. I mean, if first of all, like, you know, John and Garrett is so incredibly talented. Like, there was nothing that they couldn't play. And they were really tuned into the new music that was going on. So, you know, we were playing, you know, the animals. We were playing the doors. We were playing um, not a lot of Beatles. They were more into the, like, the edgier uh, kind of stuff. And they were just great. Like, they were super supportive to me as somebody coming in and went as far as, like, you know, they got me a keyboard so I could play. They'd set up my stuff for me all the time. It was kind of like having big brothers. You know, they were very protective. So it was it was great, and it was a lot of fun.
0: So what kind of places would you play? Mm. What kind of
1: events? Sure. So we played school dances, and there was this kind of friendly competition between us and the Universal Music Machine, U.M. Squared, with Tom Hudson. I mean, what a voice that guy has. I mean, and they were so good. They were super, super good. Mark Woodford, like all those guys. So we would kind of alternate, like they'd come play a dance at St. Pads, we'd play a dance at Sir John, or, you know, the student councils who picked the bands would kind of, you know, in retrospect, I think it was very fair. <laughs> they gave us both shots. A lot of school dances, um, and then whatever, we would privately be hired for Uh, event parties or dances at the Elks. They used to have open dances at the Elks upstairs when it was where um, the twist is now, right? And uh, so we used to play there a lot, especially in the summertime. We played Raven Mad Days in the back of trucks. Um, We played... (laughs) Probably our most famous gig was playing for Princess Anne and uh, Prince Charles when they came with their parents in 1970 for the NWT's centennial year. So we were hired for the youth event. I don't know what um, the Queen and Prince Philip were doing, but I think they are at some stuffy dinner, and so they had this youth event for Charles and Anne down at uh, the beach on Frame Lake, when that used to be a beach. Remember when yeah, you, know, you could ride your bike out to the beach yeah. and spend the day there, so that was there. So they had us playing and they came in. I remember they went right by us, and none of us were impressed, you know, that it was royalty. And my grandmother, whose English, was visiting at the time and was just appalled that I was going to play in my jeans. And um, anyway, we, we played, and uh, and then I missed meeting Prince Charles, because he came over at the break, apparently, to meet the band, but I had gone to get a hamburger, so I missed him. But the right up in the Edmonton Journal... Um, Prince Anne and Prince Charles you know, walked on this like, dusty beach at you know, 9 o'clock in the evening because of course it was summer and bright to the deafening cacophony of the local band and I remember having to look up what cacophony meant and it wasn't good and I remember telling the guys in the band that we didn't make a great impression on the Edmonton Journal reporter but uh, anyway we had fun so we did those kinds of things And then at the same time, I started playing with um, Alex Czarniecki and uh, Will Shidlowski um, in the band that Alex formed. And Alex was my grade nine English teacher. And of course, I had Will for homeroom, I think, in grade nine. Then that year, Alex arrived with a whole bunch of young teachers, Gary Lair, uh, um, Jerry Soretsky. There was a whole group of them that arrived en masse, and they weren't a lot older than we were. You know, this time I was 15, and they were probably in their early 20s. Um, so I was invited to start playing with them, and then that was really different, because of course Alex came from jazz background, so we were playing a lot of jazz standards, which I really, really loved it, um, and he was really, really talented musically, and of course Wilf had this really solid country and western background, so we were this kind of weird amalgam of you know, country and western and jazz and, you know, knock three times on the ceiling if you want me, like whatever was playing on the radio. We had this standard gig at the Legion. I think it was Legion downstairs. Anyway, for a while there, we were playing like every Friday and Saturday night. So I was juggling between the two bands. So sometimes they didn't play with Alex and Wolf because they came after But the thing that I I remember vividly about playing at the Legion was, I was really young, but I was getting this exposure to sort of the really heavy drinking culture that was going on in Yellowknife at that time. And you kind of go in there to set up, and you kind of see like the evening progress. And inevitably there was a fight, or, you know, tears, or you know, I mean there were a lot of people having fun, that was a majority of people were having fun and on the dance floor and having a great time. But there was this kind of dark edge to it that, you know, and it was so smoky, I mean I'd go home at like 2 in the morning, we'd play 10 till 2, I'd go home and I'd have to wash my hair because I couldn't stand it, it was so smoky in there. But we had a rotation of different drummers that came and went, but the constants were Alex and, and Wilf and Hugh Duncan who sang occasionally with the band who had a beautiful voice. Lucille Starr was this French-Canadian singer and she had Quand le soleil dit bonjour de Montagne and she would just like, people would just start crying. Of course, they'd had a few drinks by then. But she just had this beautiful voice that was just so soulful and could just really bring a tear to your eye. So. Yeah. So that continued till about grade 11 and then I quit both bands. Um, because it was really cutting, I was starting to get really serious about school. And, and I was doing my grade nine in Toronto Conservatory, and I was getting really squeezed for a time. You know, Frank, I was getting tired of the bar scene, too. I was starting to find that a little depressing. And I just thought, you know what? I'm, I'm just not, you know, I'm, I'm not really digging this anymore. So I quit, um, both of them. And the guys were great, you know, I just just don't feel like this is for me anymore. And with Alex, you know, he got the, you know, I need to kind of focus on school thing. Yeah, so I I stopped. Yeah.
0: So that was sort of
1: 1969. Yeah. Well, about 1970, I graduated in 73, so it would been about 71 that I stopped because the last two years I didn't play and I just focused on the classical stuff. So fast forward to about 1977, I was through university and I moved to the Yukon. And when I was in the Yukon, I kind of got reconnected with music there um, because of um, the people that I was hanging with. I had a boyfriend over there named Alex Jones, who was uh, a kind of like a poet, performing arts guy. So. I started doing like sort of piano background while he was performing. So we performed at Frago at the Folk Festival the year that Stan Rogers was there, which was amazing. I mean, we were a minor, minor act, believe me. But just reconnecting and getting kind of back into that scene again. And then I was really good friends with a woman named Kathy Cross. So Kathy and I actually wrote some things together, and we both came over here to play the first folk on the rocks. Because, well, I knew Rod Russell, you know, really well, because he stayed. Hang with all the hippies in town when I was in yeah, high school, yeah, yeah. and because uh, that's you know, and that's where a lot of the the new music was coming from too, right? Because these people are coming from Montreal and Toronto and the South, and they were you know bringing the music they were listening to with them. And um, anyway, I got in touch with Rod. I s- we sent a cassette tape, sort of audition from White Horse, and then we came over and played the first folk on the rocks and played some original stuff, which was fun. And then after that. You know, I um, moved back to Yellowknife and, you know, started having a family, and I taught piano for a while at home. Mm -hmm. Um, The years I was home with my kids, I was giving piano lessons and stuff, and that's about it. And now I just play for fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Excuse
0: me, can I rewind? Sure. (laughs) Uh, Let's go back to Fort Smith just because of the history, and I know you were really young when you were there, Yeah. Uh, but obviously pre-1967 and just even leading up to 1967, there was the, mm. the competition whether Fort Smith was going to be the capital or oh God, yeah. was going to oh be Oh, God, yeah. So oh yeah. Uh, you know, that whole thing will sort of go on. But, For sure. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is well, talking with people like Pat Burke and Tom uh-huh. Hudson and all the rest of that stuff was the music scene that was insane. Johnny Landry as well, it was yeah. sort of like even from from Johnny's being in Fort Providence, it was like a choice between Akechel Hall and Fort yeah. Smith. And a, a, yeah. For me, it would have been, well, the obvious choice is Akechel Hall, because that's what I know. Yeah. But Johnny was even saying, no, um, um, uh, decided to go to Smith. So Smith was happening, there was all kinds of local bands, they were mm-hmm. having battle events. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's kind of coming back to me. There was a, a really good music teacher at JBT, at Joseph Terrell High School in Fort Smith where the kids from Akecho went. And his name was Roger Tripp. And his younger brother and sister, they had a band. He was really young, and I just remember, you know, there, there was lots of interesting, like, music at assemblies that there were a lot of students playing, that kind of thing. And also, um, in 1967, during Centennial, there were these concerts that toured around, which you probably heard other people talk about. And I remember seeing Ian and Sylvia in the JBT school gym and just you know being like blown away by ian and sylvia who again had a really unique sound that we were just all starting to discover here because for the first time we were starting to see you know records in the stores you know which is a really new thing that yeah. we didn't really have a lot of before
0: wow and there was a music teacher that was there at the gpt
1: yeah uh, mr Tripp yeah. t-r-i-p-p and other people from smith of that era would probably be able to tell you a little, yeah. little more. When I left, only had one year of high school. There I was in grade seven, so band didn't start till grade nine. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a personal yeah. experience. I just remember being aware that you know. Remember assemblies where different students would come in. Oh my God, there were so many talented kids at uh, Grandin, right? I mean, there were so many talented kids. At
0: yeah, I was right. going to ask you about that. I'm, again, into a really young, yeah. Really, really no.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and it was small, right? So we did, you know, all hang out. So, you know, Steve Catqui, Antoine Mountain, um, Rosa Washi, as she was at the time, Bernie Masazumi, John Ticelli, Richard McNeely. You know, we saw each other every day in the yeah, hallway. Beautiful. Yeah, it was small.
0: The move to Yellowknife in, in 1967, and like you say, your dad came up here in the summertime, so he got here a little early for, because for talking to other people as well. It was like it sort of seemed like in December, <laughs> those poor people <laughs> came up on the plane from Oh, yeah, uh, and stepped yeah, out yeah, and we like, oh my god, what yeah, are done, and yeah, and moved families and everything like that. Um, that workforce sort of, yeah, came right here in order to put together the backbone
1: of right, uh, of, uh, yeah,
0: in and, and that respect, and brought their families with them, and, and um, coming from Fort Smith, yeah. to Yellowknife. Were you aware of that sort of
1: kind of energy that was sort of happening? Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because, um, well, my parents came up in somewhere in the wintertime and I stayed and I just stayed with the neighbor's family to finish off grade seven. And then I came up in the summertime. But one of the things I vividly recall from that time, and you might too, because you guys were just living down the street, is that the northern families really didn't interact socially with the people who came from the south so I remember my parents talking about or my mom you know talking about the higher ups you know that they didn't really associate with so there was this I think this social stratification that was really interesting people from the south came up and felt like they were in the middle of nowhere we came from Fort Smith and thought we'd come to the big city (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, it was a really different experience, and I think the people who came from Smith and from smaller places to Yellowknife with the government, they stuck together, and they really didn't interact with the people who were coming from Ottawa or the military or the RCMP or wherever they you know, were, were recruiting people from for the senior positions.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And just even the whole dynamic of that from 1967 to... I would
1: imagine you would probably remember the first time you walked into YK Radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. Oh, oh yeah. 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 I mean, they were great, right? The the Glicks. And that whole area of downtown used to just be, it was just so busy, you know, and bustly and, you know, with YK Photo with Jerry Wyman, and, you know, they'd have like Bob Wilson and um, they always were hiring young kids locally, mm-hmm. like, you know, Pat Monahan was working at YK Radio. and. And the Williams, you know, they always had these young people employed doing all these things. All guys come to think of it, yeah. (laughs) What was up with that? But, um, yeah. And I guess the other thing that, you know, I know you have heard from so many people was just, you know, the the work that Wilf did to nurture young musicians, too. Like, I, I remember this being very much a thing when I was in high school, was that the boys were able to go and learn how to play guitar with Wilf. There never was a girl in that group, and it was almost something that you understood. I never questioned it at the time, I do now, but at the time it was just like the boys did Shop and we did Home Ec. It's just that was something that was available to the guys, but that's where John and Gary and a lot of the other guys you know, got their start with Wilf yeah. on his own time, yeah. right? Not
0: even as a music teacher.
1: Not so even as a music he's, teacher, he's but he's just different something different. he wanted to share. Yeah. With these, with these guys, and it was great, because look what came out of that.
0: Yeah, uh, and still, it's yeah, from mm-hmm. Chase the Normal, which was... Yeah, it's pretty cool, and tease, huh? And it's just like, okay, how many years later, 50? Yeah,
1: this, yeah, you know? yeah, we all owe a, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: exactly, Yeah.
1: Just oh, I'll tell you a really funny story of something that happened once. Oh my God, this was with Alex and uh, Wilf in the band, and we were playing a dance at the Elks, and I don't know what kind of dance it was, but um, I have two funny stories. So one is, for some reason, whoever was sponsoring the scene decided it would be entertaining to have a stripper at the intermission. So there was a stripper, remember this beautiful young woman who had to have been in her early 20s, did this full-on striptease in the middle of the dance floor, and I didn't know that that was going to happen. And so I used to be in the habit, I'd bring my book um, to these things because I'd get bored at halftime. I, so I was sitting on the floor behind my keyboard and we had this big Leslie speaker so I had this nice sort of like little cave back there and I was sitting back there reading my book and I'm looking up and I'm realizing God this woman's taking off oh my God and she's got this creepy looking guy who's with her who's playing the cassette player and it's the you know boom bah kind of music that you would associate with that and I realize holy crap she's taken off her clothes well doesn't she as she strips off every eight and come and deposit it in my lap so I can't move, I'm kind of trapped there with this growing mound of her clothing growing my lap and all I can, my most strong memory is how heavily perfumed it was and like this, the scent of this cheap perfume coming up, all this stuff. And then she's like pretty much stark naked and comes over and says, thank you, and you know takes up all her clothes and runs into the ladies' washroom and gets dressed and they leave. And that was the evening's entertainment. Unbelievable. And then my other really funny memory, oh my God, I shouldn't name names, I'll tell you off the tape who it was, but because this person's very well known. But it was the age of the streaker, and we're playing, again, in the same venue, but a different dance. And out of the men's bathroom comes a quite prominent member of our community, stark naked, streaks from one end, like out of the men's bathroom, up to the front of the bar, all around the dance floor once, and back into the men's bathroom. And I just remember his wife getting up and leaving, and we're all going, oh man, like he's going to be in the doghouse for such. A-. And apparently he was for quite a while. It was kind of, you know, it was wild back then, but I remember at the time just going, huh, you know, <laughs> this is what's happening.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily clean fun, but nobody, it was, it. nobody went
1: to jail. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, no harm, really, I guess. <laughs> it was just. Like, but, here we are. but you would never see it now, right, yeah. in these politically correct times. Yeah, you yeah. would never see that kind it's of thing. Like, but, but,
0: uh,
1: yeah, okay. so anyway. We're
0: still talking about 50 years later. There you go. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's gone over the history that way.
1: We did get a gig to go play the grad in Inuvik, which was really fun. Um, with the stained glass illusion, so we went up uh, one June. It would have had to have been like 70, maybe 1970, maybe 71, and they flew us up to New Vic And I remember because Tom Zubko and his younger brother Kenny met us at the airport, and we we were billeted out different places. And I was staying with Peggy Mercerow. We knew the Murcros from Fort Smith, and they were another family that had ended up in Inuvik and we played their high school grad which was really fun so it was really you know fun just to get out to another town yeah, well,
0: for sure, yeah.
1: yeah it was great we had a blast I mean we had so much fun that weekend oh my goodness yeah 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 and they had a pretty good party scene going on there too for sure <laughs> Yeah, it's. I remember being struck at just like how busy it was up there, and just like there was a real energy in the town. Yeah, too wow. and a lot of young people. And I, the other cute thing I remember, and I guess it really was the era because it happened. Who was driving around with the Zubko boys, and how everybody in New was flashing each other the peace sign as you'd pass another vehicle. You know, it was a, it was all that flower power, summer of love kind of time. Yeah. It was still you know permeating up yeah. here too. It was kind of cool.
0: Question: Just out of the blue, um, how much were you sort of exposed at that time to the the traditional musics up here, either the fiddle Mm -hmm. music or the drum dancing and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, not at all. Not at all. 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 I, you know, when I was going to school, you wouldn't have even known that, you know, that existed. Even though I was going to the Catholic school, where a lot of indigenous, local indigenous kids were going to the, you know, to St. Pat's. A Hall was mostly you know for indigenous kids out of town, but we had all the Erasmus kids were. In our class, Philip Mercury, the Lamoelles, you know, we're all going to, to St. Pat's. But it didn't happen. It wasn't really until later when my late husband, Mike, was the MLA for Yellowknife North and we, we started going to community events in data and Dilo, and going to drum dances and things like that. And well and when I was working, especially for the housing corporation, I had a gig for a couple of years where I went to almost every community in the NWT and Nunavut to do the first housing needs surveys. And often I because of the way the flights worked and everything, you'd be in communities for a couple of weeks at a time. And so I was lucky enough to catch some community events where there would be dances. And that's where, you know, I would hear whoever it was who played locally, and I just remember that's where I have those memories of how cool those community events were in terms of people showing up and having such a nice time and dancing, and, and there was no drinking. Communities were dry, and it was such a nice vibe. And I remember thinking how different it was to the gigs I had been playing when I was younger in Yellowknife that were so alcohol soaked and often, you know, a lot of drugs too, and how out in the communities it was just felt so pure. It's like it was just the music and the people. And all generations, which again was something very different than what I had experienced here, where it was everybody in town was coming out. So you could be in Time and there'd be a square dance with a squeeze box, you know, and a fiddle. And I remember there were guitars, or you'd be in a clavic and there'd be something going on there, and you'd go and listen. And there'd be fiddles, and you know. Um, but I just remember being struck at just how how much. More I liked the community stuff and how much more comfortable I felt because you could just really relax and be there. And, uh, you know, there wasn't all this stuff going on around the edge. This
0: would have been the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Even then. Yeah, late 70s. Yeah. You can talk about the communities being isolated from the rest of that stuff. Yeah, mid to late 70s. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it was very alive. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really good. It was really, really good. It was it was a yeah it was a real privilege to be yeah. able to you know be there and
0: and to you would have caught that generation of old timer mm-hmm. those people that had been playing since the 30s s and the 40s, oh 50s, yeah the Wallingfords the Morris the Harkis, or even those guys yeah.
1: And I also remember because when I traveled, I'd always connect with people my own age in the communities. I mean, that's how I met Rassi Like I was working for St. John Ambulance and showed up in Pangertong. And, you know, I'd look for somebody my own age to help me translate little handwritten posters to say, you know, there's first date at the high school on a Friday night, come on down. Um, but um, you'd go to people's houses because hospitality was, you know, was huge in the communities. You'd always be invited to come over to somebody's house, and then we, you know, granny be sitting in, you know, on the floor on a mattress in the corner, and she'd have the little squeeze box, and she'd just be, you know, playing some Scottish reel, and it was just part of the, you know, nobody thought anything of it. It's just what people did. I feel really lucky to have had just, you know, the, the tiny glimpses I did, but I remember how it felt, and just, like, how warm and Pure, it just really felt that it was just people coming together and the music being kind of what was knitting it all. Really cool.
0: As you said before, a very brief time that you we were here, but it was so much going on and just trying to get a snapshot of that kind of interaction from yourself. But I mean, you obviously had lots of work experience living in Fort, mm-hmm. Bay Fort Smith. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah. as if you just moved up here from.
1: Not at all. No, 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 no. I mean, I felt weird when I went south. You know, that was, that was the adjusting for me was going south. But no, I always felt really comfortable in the little communities. I'd grown up in really small places, and and I was really used to being one of the few non-Indigenous people in a community. I grew up with that, so I never felt weird about because I'd always felt very welcome and. All my friends were indigenous because really there wasn't anybody else <laughs> to be friends with. Yeah, and exactly, so yeah. I've always felt really comfortable and at home in communities. And
0: well, and vice versa for, for them, I mean, they get a vibe off of Kabuna or Yeah, you white know, like guy or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, no, this guy's not cool. Or, oh, no, this girl's cool. Right, cool. And come on mm-hmm. over for dinner and stuff like mm-hmm. that because they know really get it, right? Because that's your yeah. experience. And, and I think. For those of us who have grown up here, it's a, it's a bit of a gift.
1: Oh, this, it's this, such this, a gift. This. It's such a privilege. Because I got to go to every community, and I think there were like 56 of them at the time, and I'd spend, you know, at least a month in each one of them over a period of a couple of years that I was doing that work. You get these, you know, do you want to come in the boat? We're going sailing, or we're going to go see my grandma's camp. So, I going to be vivid memories of being in, like, Greece Fjord, and, July, and the ice is still out in the ocean, and going out at like two in the morning, like having somebody knock on the door where I was staying and saying, hey, we're going to grandma's camp, do you want to come? And, you know, saying, yeah, sure, you know, getting up, and the sun is shining in the sky, and the ocean is this gorgeous turquoise, and there's, you're going in and out of the ice that's all chunky and floating, and you end up on this gravel beach where there's some tent frames, and grandma's cooking up the baby seal that somebody caught and it's the most delicious thing you ate in your life and you know you just have these magical magical experiences that you know stay with you forever and you just get to have a glimpse of how people lived so um, so in tune with their environment and just how cool they are (laughs) just welcoming calm um just really happy with everything they have and just deeply connected to their environment. It's just such a gift.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know? uh, and the generation thing too is mm-hmm. something that I keep getting pinged by the time when we were growing up and having those experiences and the experiences that you're talking about those elders again like just see circles back and they're basically carrying them the same way that they've been mm-hmm. carrying them for hundreds of months, mm-hmm. Thousands, thousands, thousands yeah. of years right? and it's not there anymore uh, being able
1: to experience that. Yeah, I remember when T V was introduced and I was travelling in communities at that time and I remember arriving in Ahviat in like February and going into the co op hotel and all the staff were gathered around they saw these big projection TVs and they're watching um, All My Children. And they're like, your lunch is in the oven, like, we're busy, you know, like, we're watching. You know, like, they couldn't tear them And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is what Indigenous people in the North are going to think white people are like in the South, that they're like these soap operas, because that's what we're showing them. That's what's on TV. That's what they're being exposed to. But TV also brought, you know, music, too, because I remember, and you were just down the street, you you guys were probably watching the same stuff. We were watching a few doors up because there was, like, a... Don Messer's Jubilee and Sing Along Jubilee and, you know, things like the Sonny and Cher show that, you know, things that were also bringing music into northern households and different music than, you know, we had been hearing. But just, you know, the exposure, guys like Eugene McClellan and Anne-Marie, who was singing on Don Messer's Jubilee at that time and just, oh God, I remember seeing Bruce Coburn on TV, on some CBC thing. And the first time I had ever been exposed to anything by Bruce Coburn, and he was playing the piano. I remember he had like this curly afro, and he was playing a tune called Musical Friends. And, and it was just catchy and, you know, a great little song. But yeah, you're just starting to get these outside influences um, coming in. Coming in through, through mm-hmm. television.
0: Yeah. The town in those years that you're talking about. With the indigenous people here, the next blood people that were here, uh, people that were coming in from all over the world here, mm-hmm. and here we are. And uh, when I we moved here in 64, it was like 4,000 people. Yeah, maybe in the time that we're talking about, it was around eight or ten. Mm-hmm. So everybody still knew each other, and yeah. so there was this interaction oh, yeah. going to the grocery store, getting their mm-hmm. hair done, mm-hmm.
1: um, hair cut, yeah.
0: whatever, working or whatever. Yeah, so there was this, this interaction. And even yeah, Elk sort of talks about that at the Commissioner's balls there. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you're, you're dancing away, and there's the commissioner and uh, yeah. and all of these ministers, and yeah. and there's the guy who pumps up your, your sewage tank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And your dance. Yeah, yeah. And there was no, yeah. it was just sort of this little line. Yeah. Well, that was the, again, rewind. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the very late 1960s, because the other part that I sort of recognized with the people that I've known in my life and through that time. Uh huh. They came up here as young people to pay off the student loan. Uh-huh. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my take on it was, okay, so the government had moved in here in 67, and mm-hmm. so then for the next three or five years, it was like, we need office space, we yeah. need housing, we need... yeah. And so there was all of these young tradespeople, or not tradespeople, but just there was work up here. Yeah. You know? They, in turn, brought their musics up mm-hmm. with them and their musical experiences are mm-hmm. taken Mm-hmm. the Sandy Wilsons and the John yeah, Tellegens yeah, yeah. and those guys, and they had yeah. already played down south for a while, so they came up here and they were pretty shit-hot, so that kind of changes everything, but yeah. um, just the influx of young people, players or not players, yeah. musicians, non-musicians, yeah but, again, pre-Annex Satellite, pre-any kind of technology, the meeting places was in the bars and mm-hmm. the Elks Hall dances, and mm-hmm. if you could get somebody to sign you in into the club, rooms, yeah
1: that's... Oh, God, yeah. It was so relaxed back then. I mean, you wouldn't have had, like, a 15-year-old person playing in a licensed establishment now. But nobody thought anything of it at all. But, yeah, you make a good point about, you know, it isn't just the musicians, but it's the people who come who support music and, and love music. And so they will go to the concerts and they'll go to the venues. And nowadays they would buy to download the music or you know they, they understand how how it works that are, are just as important mm-hmm. too.
0: Yeah well again even that age demographic that sort of came up here to take advantage of that employment that was happening mm-hmm. Again, people were just coming out of their universities or colleges Yeah everyone was looking for yeah. people and, yeah. and so you know I can just sort of see um, a town Mining town, <laughs> yeah. And these generations of people that go back to whenever the mines kicked up, yeah. After the Second World War, yeah. And then in the late '60s, all of a sudden, there's all these young people. All the hippies, hippies arrived. Like, oh God, yeah. Smoke oh and, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, oh, of oh, for and, sure. And how uh, threatening, I guess, or, or you know.
1: I guess the thing was is because Yellowknife, I think, has always been a kind of place that, you know, Mike used to say, you know, the north attracts people that are really comfortable being on the fringe. Right, like if you really need your manicured house in your gated community, you're not going to like it here. But people who are like, I can really be myself here and I can do my own thing here, these are people that you know love the north. And Yukon was very much the same, you know, it attracts people that really want to, you know, be somewhere really different than where they come from. For us who grew up here, it's just home, but for other people, they're like, Wow, this is wild. You know, up here, you can do whatever. You can have a houseboat. You can live on Jolliffe Island. Like, you can go put a teepee out on the Burwash Point, and nobody's going to bother you, you know, which is what it was like in the 60s and, and early 70s here. I remember being on Jolliffe Island, there used to be a bunch of old oil drums up there. So people would, you know, party over there, and then be, everybody be beating on the oil drums. And then Charlie Sanders, you'd hear him yelling, Jolliffe Island, shut the... You know, People are like, people are trying to sleep, you know. Yeah, okay. And the sun carries over the water, and everybody's like, "Oh, you know." We woke up, Charlie. You know, party's <laughs> over. You know, time to do something else. But you know, there was like an upright piano that was sitting out on the dock all summer on Jolliffe Island that had a tarp that you know somebody remembered go and put the tarp over for it rained, but you could just sit out there and play the piano. I mean, it was beautiful. It was fabulous. So all
0: good you sort of putting yourself in the chronology of what was sort of happening in the place and the time yeah. you, were, you were at and kind of uh, and sort of, sort of getting yeah. get to start getting a snapshot,
1: so I appreciate it. Oh, you welcome. It was fun. Thank you, Pat.
0: I would like to thank Penny for sharing her rich musical life story with Musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of her life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes you can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, Jolenec Community Foundation and the City of Jolenec Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening.